Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host, for today's exciting tale of terror. The Toxic Avenger hideously deformed episode of superhuman size and strength. <laughs> Dear listeners, co-ghost and producer Ash here. In light of recent events, I wanted to bring two fundraisers to your attention. Former musical guests of Horror Vanguard, The Ableist, have released a brand new t-shirt design. All proceeds from sales of this t-shirt are going to on-the-ground relief efforts in Palestine. One of my favorite musical acts, Hellgazer, released a new track on May 22nd in celebration of World Goth Day. All proceeds from the track are also going to on-the-ground relief efforts in Palestine. Check out these two bands, support some great musical artists, and a good cause while you're at it. I return you to our show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 140 <laughs> episode of Horror Vanguard. I am one of your co-ghosts. My name is Ash, and I am joined, as always, by... Hey, it's John, uh, otherwise known as the Lit Guy. Happy to be here. Yes, the man, the myth, the legend, John, a.k.a. the Liquor Guy. How are you doing today? I'm, it's it's such an I... honor to have you here in the HV Crypt on our show. Thank you for coming on. Uh, <laughs> long, t- uh, long time, first time here. Long time fan, first time caller. Uh, no, what? Um, I've been on the show for a while. <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm doing okay. I, I am, that, that COVID vaccine uh, has gotten some pretty brutal side effects for me anyway so i am i am not i'm not in peak fighting form but very excited to be here very excited to be talking about um maybe one of the last great auteurs of 20th century cinema (laughs) today and i i I unironically believe this to be true Ooh, oh okay well that's gonna get interesting um yeah we'll have to we'll have to have like a, a rob zombie lloyd kaufman uh, uh, like cage fight one day. <laughs> um, yeah, but, um, but all all jokes about all tour theory aside, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, possibly the film that put trauma on the map, The Toxic Avenger. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsors. This program is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you for listening and stay spooky. It's not wolves. It's wolf. For 20,000 years. Ten times you're fucking Christian era. We are talking about our um the first time we're talking about um a trauma entertainment uh, motion picture on this here show of ours and some of you may have heard of trauma some of you may be familiar with lloyd uh, kaufman some of you may have seen some of his incredibly wide-ranging uh filmography but as ash said this is arguably the film that put trauma on the map and you know, I, I, I think it's not, not unfair to call this a kind of cult classic, so it probably doesn't have huge amounts of, like, mainstream saturation. So to that end, 
Ash, would you mind telling me and everyone listening what the Toxic Avenger is really all about? Success is its own teleology. Nothing ever goes according to plan, and victory is defined in retrospect rather than in action. Galaxies hurtle through the void on paths dictated by the arbitrary motion of cosmic energy, and so do we, our lives, and our best-laid plans. Movies that would tell you otherwise, irrespective of their genre, are fantasy films. Where then do we find the truth in the shimmering lights of the silver screen? The luminaries of cinema verite, nor the icons of Italian neorealism, could have encapsulated the Grecian torment of the human desire to conquer fate better than was depicted in the Toxic Avenger. Melvin, our protagonist, is cast adrift in the torrents of patriarchal standards of formale bodies and capitalism's eternal grind. His plans at the onset of our film are, like his character, reflective of our own unacknowledged damnation. Either contented with his lot in life or unaware of hope, Melvin lets systemic forces do the planning for him. This, in and of itself, is the groundwork for Melvin becoming agential in his own life. A fateful day of manual labor and governmental deregulation leads Melvin to being exposed to toxic slime, mutating him into a hideous creature of superhuman size and strength. Melvin remains a loser at heart and circumstances always act as a guiding light for his plans, but as a monster he attains unity with this fate. His plans can coalesce and move with intention, Melvin Comtoxy exists as both a scornful mockery of the rote work and systemic force we consider our lives, and as a symbol of hope amidst despair. Like the townsfolk of Tromaville, we come to love the monster as a way to love the self. Join us as we discuss the Toxic Avenger. There we go. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I... Sometimes, sometimes when I'm listening to these, I'm sort of like, "Huh, I really?" Yeah. But this time, I'm sort of like, "Yes, this is this is I'm 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 on board with everything that you've 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 said here. I think this is going to be such a great discussion." Um, but before we get into this film, into the kind of granular detail of this film, maybe it's worth, given that this is uh, uh, the first trauma movie that we've done, maybe it's worth kind of just giving a brief. One on one introduction to to trauma and to to what, what what does it mean to say that this is a trauma film? I think I think that's an interesting kind of framework, right? Trauma trauma has since the creation of the Toxic Avenger developed a very signature approach to to this kind of irrele- irreverent black comedy splatter B horror, and to to the extent where that is is very much their uh, brand might be a crass capitalistic way of putting it, but it's their brand nonetheless. Uh, Troma got their start as a film distributor founded by Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hertz back in 1947. That's a little a little early, 1974. <laughs> um, and they, they produce kind of like low-budget independent cinema. They pick up low-budget independent movies for distribution. Um, and then they wind up creating The Toxic Avenger, which becomes... Uh, in in 1984, and this this is kind of a game changer for Troma. You know, th- this is where Troma really develops their what has become their iconic and signature style. Um, the direction that they take their own productions in really like like the Toxic Avenger is the seed from which Troma blooms. Uh, 
um yeah it was it was the first horror movie uh famously lloyd kaufman read an article at the Cannes film festival uh saying something to the effect of like horror movies are dead no one likes horror anymore no one can do horror anymore and um being perhaps a bit stubborn went out and made the toxic adventure (laughs) (laughs) there's something sort of admirable about that um but I'd say, what would you say are the kind of main aesthetic markers of a, of a trauma film? If this is where we see the kind of style and aesthetics and form come together to create the Toxic Avenger. Formally, style, stylistically, what are we talking about here? I, I would say that the stylistic and formal hallmarks of a trauma, of a proper trauma release, because there are, there are so many movies that have the dun-dun-dun-dun trauma intro in front of them because, you know, trauma started off as a film distributor, so there's a lot of movies under under the umbrella. But I think the the movies most associated with trauma are irreverent black comedies, uh, splatter films, and this kind of independent and intentionally independent B-horror cinema. Yeah, so we're talking we're talking films made on very small or micro budgets. We're talking a lot of practical effects. Uh, we're talking about a kind of very broad, kind of kitsch, uh, comedic sensibility. We're talking like un- unashamedly B movie style. All of that you'll find here. Yes, and there's there's also I would say there's also a through line of of political discussion that that goes through all of Troma's work. Uh, oh yes know, and we will we will absolutely get you know for, for better or for worse lloyd kaufman is is 100 percent not shy about wading into political issues he is uh trying to say something with you know capitalized trying to say something um and i think we're going to get into some really interesting discussions about what we think the toxic avenger is trying failing and succeeding to say um, in the course of its what, just over ninety minute runtime, so I think I think uh, th- this is a good point then to pivot into the formalism zone, and and hopefully I can make that sound really cool in post, and then do a little <laughs> Twilight Zone music on top of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I see what you're doing. Okay, thank you. <laughs> is it acceptable? <laughs> I think it's a great movie. Um, yes, absolutely. It is, uh, there, in a way, this is kind of like a, it's kind of like a, it, it seems almost like a prototype of other later films. So I think Kaufman, Kaufman's been incredibly influential. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of surreal when you think about like who's worked with Kaufman or who's been in a trauma movie. If you look up some of the famous names, which have been in it, but I'm like a lot of the stylistic choices, a lot of the editing choices, um, seem very kind of embryonic in the Toxic Avenger, right? It seems like this is a, it's the beginnings of a style that will later develop into something else, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Like you know, as as I was saying, like Toxie, the Toxic Avenger, rather. Um, Toxie as a name didn't exist yet when this movie came out. It was just a monster, humble beginnings. Um, but but this is definitely the. The, the seed of that that grows the rest of trauma right like you, you don't get to poultry geist without the toxic avenger <laughs> and yeah i think i think a lot like you know like like people talk about the roger corman like like school of cinema and and how many like 
just kind of like legendary, artistic, well-respected, award-studded filmmakers either cut their teeth or worked with Roger Corman at some point. And I think that maybe not to such a star-studded extent, but Troma and Lloyd Kaufman has very much the same vibe. You know, we've got like Kevin Costner, Michael J. White, James Gunn, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. You know, it's just a lot of people who've become incredibly successful and incredibly famous uh, doing early work in and with Troma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I, I like that it has a kind of deliberately DIY, like lo-fi, almost kind of punk aesthetic, where it's like, this is clearly, this is clearly like, who do we know? <laughs> who do we know oh, yeah. that can like, that can like, let us have a car that we can drive off a cliff? Uh, who, who do we know who can help us find somewhere that's got a sauna or a steam room? That we, <laughs> and I sort of, I sort of really respect that. Um, just, just the willingness to be like, okay, we've got $75,000 and a whole lot of red corn syrup. Let's make a movie. (laughs) Yes. I, I really, really like that stuff. Um, like, like this DIY almost punk ethos is some of my favorite stuff in trauma. Um, these movies, like the, the trauma titles that, that really carry the weight of that name to me have always kind of felt like like these really like crass punk zines that get that that are turned into movies you know it almost has that kind of energy where it's like i'm watching like it's just just like a punk zine come to life yeah exactly exactly um it it tends to be that there's a kind of stylization and i think um it's particularly in the performances i know we're going to get into the acting performances in more detail but you can totally see that in, in this right every it's we're not talking about naturalist filmmaking um because we're also talking about a guy who gets mutated into a superhero through the through an exposure to green goo so like naturalism and the kind of like a, i think a really good point of comparison is a24 like you know <laughs> when you're watching <laughs> Right, you know, you know when you're watching an A24 movie, right? A24 uh, back down. You just got. <laughs> that's one hell of a comparison. I love that. <laughs> but I think in in contemporary horror cinema, they're probably the ones who are closest to having an identifiable aesthetic sensibility, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you know what their films look like, and I think the same is true of Trauma. Trauma did it first, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um. Definitely, yeah. So, so how about this, this movie in, in particular? Then let's specifically talk about some some formalist elements of the Toxic Avenger that were intriguing and enjoyable. Because I really do love the. I, I think one one of the, one of the keys to making a successful kind of indie and or B movie, depending on which I know both of those frameworks are a little bit loaded terms in and of themselves. Um, but I think one of the keys to success when you have these kind of like access restraints, right. And I won't even say budgetary restraints. I'll just say access restraints, right? Like you can't access the same things that like a full blown Hollywood studio production can have access to. Um, but one of the keys is to kind of respect that limitation and, and to move with intention in that space. And, you know, nothing in trauma movies, you're very rarely in trauma movies do things feel like they're 
reaching for something they can't achieve. You know, these are incredibly well-made films inside of the limitations they're given. And I think that that there's something almost inspiring about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I I would agree. I think, um, I think the practical effects are fun. I think the, um, uh, the performances have a kind of like uh, kitsch camp quality to them. Um, yeah, 100%. My, <laughs> uh, there, there are two things for with trauma movies, which always kind of like slightly, uh, I, I'm always slightly sort of jarred out of it by one, which is the sound mixing, uh, mm-hmm. which is, which is not, it's not, it's not great, but that's fine. <laughs> And the other is, I know this might seem like a really a strange detail, but um, transitions in editing uh, exist. They're a thing. We've, we've known about them for a while. But, <laughs> but, but a trauma movie will just go, no, we're in a different place now. Come on, you got you to keep up. You got to keep up. We're on the move. Um, and I think if you haven't watched many trauma movies, that will be a little bit kind of... Um, uh, it'll t- it, it, on on a level that you may not be consciously aware of. It will take you a little while to adjust to that. See, what I, about you? What do you think? I like that though. I like that in the same way that I like um, a bad mixtape made by a punk band on a four track recorder. And, and yeah, you, exactly. You, it, it sounds <laughs> it's like garage rock. You know, it's got this kind of like dirty quality to it, but it that that makes it more endearing. That makes me feel closer to the art in a way. And not in a way where it's clearly, you know, because there are certain garage rock bands that have become extremely successful, but they want to keep the ethos. Um, Mm. But you wind up in the situation where like you're in a multi-million dollar recording studio that you're then trying to make sound like, you know, the basement of your apartment or something. Yeah, exactly. But this, this is like almost, almost the other way where like irrespective of how successful trauma has become in terms of their independent releases, you know, like they they keep moving within this kind of like B horror independent. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll use the word punk again, even though like I don't know, it's it's I'm spinning the wheel of loaded terms today, but um, you know, like they keep moving within that space, and I I, I really like that. It adds it adds a fun like it's fun to me that I can see the boom mics in in trauma yeah, ex- movies. Exactly, like you can one hundred percent tell when they had to do ADR or something. Oh yeah, there's a there. There is quite a bit of ADR in this. In this whenever, whenever Toxie speaks, <laughs> uh, yeah, because they decided to dub his voice uh, with a different actor. You, you, you gotta, but like, I, I love, I love it though because it's just very clearly like Toxie will turn to face away from the camera and then begin speaking, and I'm like, this is just perfect. <laughs> it's the perfect solution for like, ah, you know, like doing anything else would look bad or be really hard, so we'll just have him face whoever he's speaking to. <laughs> And we'll we'll hide it. I, I feel like I feel like the phrase "we'll hide it in the edit" was said quite a lot on the set. <laughs> I do. Yeah, we'll edit around it. It's yeah. fine. It's fine. Um, but generally, I think it's I think it's really fun. I think it's really fun. It's it's obvious that a lot of the people uh, who are on camera are just like, you know, people who were around, and and you know, they were like, oh, we need people to fill this shot. But um, a lot of them are super, super funny. A lot of the background characters. Um, and I just think, I was just thinking to myself watching it, I was like, if I saw this film, like, when I was 16 or 17, 
I, I would want to be, I would burningly want to be a horror movie director. <laughs> like, that's what I think about this movie. <laughs> Yeah, no, and as somebody who first started watching trauma movies in their teens, like that is one hundred percent the vibe. <laughs> um, I know, I know, like a lot of like a lot of movie productions, like the the on screen talent goes through hell. Uh, like like the actor who played Melvin would just like lived through a nightmare when he was covered with the toxic goo. Um, they they yeah, struggled yeah. to get it off of him. The scene in the bathtub, the bathtub was ice cold, and he just decided to power through it rather than them trying to figure out a way to heat it. Um, the the actor in the Mexican restaurant who points a gun at a baby, <laughs> which that uh, if you yeah. if you haven't seen this movie, that will that kind of, that that phrase encapsulates kind of the black humor we're dealing with here. He wound up leaving the production because doing that was like pretty intense. So yeah, 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 that's I think that's that's also kind of like one of the the hallmarks of trauma movies. You know, like to make an independent film is an exercise of self torture to an extent. Yeah, yeah, and you have to you have to have people who kind of believe in what you're trying to do, um, as as a director, as as a as a production company, um, and it, it's not a surprise that the actors, or at least the main actors kind of go through some pretty pretty intense stuff which um i can totally see having an impact on people um the scene in the restaurant is is actually uh pretty like that was the scene where i was like uh this is kind of uncomfortable in multiple different directions at the same time and i'm not sure how i feel about it i i think that's and i think i think this will this will get us on to discussing the movie itself uh because i think that that feeling is really interesting. So I think it's time it's time to leave the formalism zone and enter into the toxic discourse. There's the cut. Uh yeah. <laughs> there we go. Boom. But I think I think that uh, Oh, you good go on. No, no, no. Go on. What were you well, I, say? I was gonna say I think that that's that's a good place to pivot then, right? Because the 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 restaurant scene has the most going on in out of any scene in this entire movie, which says something. <laughs> if you've seen this movie or it's up there it's up there at the very least in terms of just like what did i just see in the restaurant scene we see a, a dog get taken away from a woman who has like a visual impairment and then the dog gets shot with a shotgun and like blown across the room yeah a gun gets pointed at a baby like it's it's a really hardcore sequence of events but mixed in with like a camp fight between like a, a camp kung fu fight between Toxie and one of the robbers, guy getting turned into a milkshake, another guy getting turned into a yep. pizza, a third guy getting deep fried. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's it's like when you were talking earlier about how like all of the cuts and and most a lot of the cuts in Toxie are just cuts, just your bog standard cut, and it creates this kind of like frantic pace. In, in the movie where things are just jumping all of the time to the next scene. And that I, I think carries into spiritually with what we see on screen, right? There's a lot of frantic energy in this film. Yes. Um, I, I totally agree, but I, let's kind of cut to the chase. Let's kind of cut, cut to the chase really, which is like this film uh, is, is deeply problematic in lots of ways. And we should talk about that, those ways. And what we do with kind of problematic art, um, there are some pretty, um, 
I'm I'm gonna say uh, uh, of of their time stereotypes about um about women about gay people about people with visual impairments uh, and a whole host of other stereotypes. There is there is there is there's just a lot going on in in this, and there's going to be some stuff which people will watch and just find kind of crassly offensive and unacceptable and fair enough. And there is some stuff which we might go again of its time and and maybe would not be included in a trauma production now but i guess oh no it would i don't know <laughs> uh, no yeah yeah what am i saying of course it would of course it would i'm i'm i guess what i'm saying is like what do we do with all of that stuff how do we kind of approach uh because i think I, th- I you know how do we approach this well i think that that's always that's always the interesting question and, and i mean like we, we're a horror movie podcast Every every single episode we have is about a movie wherein a bunch of people get killed, uh, mutilated, and and otherwise uh, bodily abu- bodily abuse is core to the genre in a way, right? Same with humiliation and degradation. These horror, you know, we we talk a lot about the show about horror existing kind of on a on this in this peripheral space, right? And we talk about that most often in the context of like why why it is that monsters join the other the capital O other so often right they're both forced into these spaces on the on the border of proper society, but I think another manifestation of that is is horror is necessarily largely in these spaces. You know you can't you you can't turn away from it right. Horror is an expression of those things which we wish to reject from ourselves on a societal level. That's part of what makes this scary. Troma's approach to that is incredibly direct and incredibly crass. There's no flinching in a trauma movie. There's no artful disguise. Everything is kind of open. You know, like the heart of this movie is open to you. Everything is laid bare. And I think I think a lot of, of this is about tone, right? Um, yes, there's a lot of crass, disgusting, offensive stuff in this, but this is not presented to you as anything. Like the, the director and writer and actors are not taking all of this super seriously, right? You know, none of this is supposed to be taken as like this is this is what the writer and director actually think about LGBT people or. Um, uh, uh, women or the differently abled or whatever. None of that is. It's. It, this is. This is as you say, kind of frantic. The frantic energy thing. I think is a really important point in communicating that tone. Um, but uh, all we're saying is, you know, just be aware when you go in, if you've never seen a trauma movie before. Well, and I think like this is this this is the problem that you get with satire and parody in general, right? Like it's it's hard to age satire and parody outside of contemporary contexts because they're extreme. Yeah. This is, these are two extremely context dependent modes. And on top of that, I think it it further asks us questions like, okay, like what what are we seeing depicted on the screen? How are we seeing it depicted? And how does that? What do I then do with this information? Right? Like, where do we go next? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I I I think kind of confronting or dealing with um dealing with art that is in some way deliberately trying to be offensive uh you know the the offense and the crass and the gross out stuff is is part of the point yeah mm-hmm. um is is absolutely worth kind of investigating and and trying to determine for yourself as a 
as a critical viewer, as someone who wants to engage with art, taking that on its own terms. For some people, for some people, Trimus films are not for them. And that's fine. Not everything has to be universal, right? Not everything has to be for everybody. Um, but um, there, there'll be people who probably watch watch the movie and go, hey, this is really good. But there are some bits about this I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't really like or I didn't really um, think were that funny or didn't really work. And I think those are those are fair criticisms to make. I would say that, like, is it is it the directness of how trauma depicts these things that makes trauma so salacious you know because like it's it's a narrower field of view to like uh hashtag problematic depictions of queer people like you don't have to go very far in contemporary media to find terrible depictions deeply problematic troubling unsettling depictions but they're all cloaked under the guise of often this kind of liberalized politeness that trauma sheds the weight of and, and just goes straight to the throat of these things. And I, I I would say that a lot of the things that are troubling in a trauma movie are these condensed reflected parodies of what we see in media more broadly. Yeah. Cause this is the position of outsider art, right? Yes. Um, or, or low budget or kind of this, this, this DIY uh, kind of filmmaking is always to comment you know, these are satires and they're not just satires of particular setups, they're satires of film culture more generally. So um, I actually think that's a really important point in, in trying to kind of get across why stuff like trauma is not only, you know, it's not only shouldn't be kind of done away with, but it's actually really worth defending. Uh, and it would do, it would be a good thing if there was more well-made, funny, insightful and subversive B media that comments on the homogenized liberal politics of mass media production. Now that would be an undeniable good thing. 10 out of 10 agree. (laughs) These, and I think this is what, I think we've said something similar to this before on the show and no doubt we'll say it again, given the fact that we are a dedicated horror movie podcast, but like these are the conversations that are really worth it. You know, the the game is very worth the candle here. You know, if, if we're going to be talking about things, I think it's it, it's so worth it to have these conversations with no clear-cut, clean endings and only a lot of of questions and challenging conversations and and ways we can move forward through this space. You know, rather than just these kind of quick comment, because it would be really easy to do an entire episode on Toxie and just reduce it down to like this kind of like trite environmentalism and discussions of kind of like policy. You know, like like that that could have been yeah, the entire yeah. focus, and we could have dodged more complicated discussions without clean endings altogether. But I think that this stuff is is really worth it because there's no. Just like a trauma movie, like when a trauma movie, there's no easy way out. No, no one exits a trauma movie in, in, in it as as they entered. Right, everyone becomes fundamentally changed by the end of it on a bodily level, and I think these conversations reflect that. I I couldn't agree more, and I think then it's it's time it's time to kind of talk about a really important aspect of this film, uh, which is uh, just. Guys being dudes, just let's 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 talk about the 
just dudes, just dudes in this film. Let's talk about uh, how this film thinks and 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 constructs masculinity. So I, I know this movie is technically about Melvin, aka Toxie, um, but I have maybe like eight hundred to nine hundred words of notes on Bozo alone. <laughs> Um, so, so for people who've not seen it, maybe let's kind of let's kind of explain this a little bit. So, Melvin is our uh, protagonist. He is a ninety-five pound weakling, as the film describes him, <laughs> who works as a um, custodial assistant or janitor in the Tromaville uh, Health Center slash gym. Um, and Bozo uh, is one of the uh, kind of muscle heads in the gym. Um, and how would you describe the two? How would you describe Bozo in relation to Melvin? So, so I would I would describe them herein and as such. Uh, Bozo is the supreme manifestation of the neurosis of the patriarchy, and Melvin is the necessary shadow by which that neurosis defines itself against. Melvin is everything that is unacceptable to kind of this pure manifestation of patriarchal masculinity. And and Bozo is attempting to embody that pure manifestation. Yeah, there's 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 something of the like. Let's if we if we if if you'll allow us to get a little Freudian, dear listener. So Bozo is. Do like, they have a choice uh, at this point? Working. <laughs> you really don't. Not not with a trauma movie. Bozo is like constantly working out. You know, he, he's got this stereotypical. Um, uh, attractive blonde on his arm. He's like very aggressive, very kind of normatively uh, hat, normatively sort of aggressive masculinity. But he's also um, kind of this, in Freudian terms, a sort of screaming hysteric. Yes. Who's constantly like, yeah, sc- like screeching about how stressed he is and 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 how much he's getting stressed out by things. And there's something so kind of interesting about this film, which sets him up as like this this male Adonis, but it's constantly undercutting it by going, this guy's also a massive loser in his own way. And, and I think that, I think the interesting thing here is like, like, you know, like there's a reason why hysterics have been like done away with entirely as a psychological condition. And it's that they were just, it's just straight up misogyny, you know, like, like one, one of the ye olde, uh, cures for hysteria was getting married and having children. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting. Yes, that Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't think we should use the term in anything other than a kind of psychoanalytic Freudian. Oh, no, yeah, totally, totally. Which has its own limitations and problems. But I, I, I do find it to be interesting that Bozo kind of is a, is like a manifestation of like a lot of like the classical, uh, hallmarks of what you know people in the early 1900s used to like use to describe that condition and i also think that this is it's very revealing in his character right because like what is the the kind of essential patriarch supposed to be if not this like stalwart emotion free figure right he's not supposed to feel he's supposed to just be like this cold rational judgment and if he feels it should be anger but like what does bozo feel constantly if not just like this like shredding anxiety just 24 seven. Like one of, one of his initial lines is he's, he's talking about Melvin and he's like, he's like, would you take a look at that fucking guy? The mop boy can't even mop, right? You're ruining my karma. 
you know like he's so yeah. focused on these things and and it, i actually yeah. i actually have a theory about this Ooh, I, like I actually theories. have a theory about this which is so the idea of kind of normative behaviors for the the patriarchal figure is historically constituted yes uh, constituted right so for example uh turn of the um late 18th century you have the introduction of the idea of sensibility where uh it was it was thought to be a kind of a normative standard that men would cultivate a kind of gentle and poetic sensibility mm-hmm. this notion of of the 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 beneficent father weeping over their children's mis- misfortunes for example now if we think about the the context of this film's production it's it's the 80s it's 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 the it's the cocaine era it's the greed is good era but like cocaine is the is is an is an in, an affective intensifier right mm-hmm. so it intensifies aggression but also it's it's the anxiety of somebody coming down off a coke high it's it's like the anxiety of being found out of losing everything in the great kind of capitalist gamble that you've been encouraged to take on not just a, an, an economic level, but on an emotional uh, and uh, on the level of kind of phenomenology, right? So he's, he's, he's the kind of like undershadow of, of, you know, Gordon Gecko, right? He's the <laughs> kind of dark reflection. You've got, you've got, um, you know, the, the wall street guys are making movies about making so much money over in New York, but here in, uh, New Jersey, which is <laughs> quite obviously where we're set, you have the kind of coked out come down where everything is tinged with this horrifying, sweaty anxiety about what you could lose. And I, th- I think that the focus on what could be lost is really interesting because, like, what is Melvin's character if if not everything Bozo is afraid of having about himself? Right. Melvin, mm. Melvin is physically weak. Um, Melvin is is tricked into wearing a tutu, uh, which is, you know, classically very effeminate clothing. Um, he, you know, Melvin also can't get laid. Melvin has a shitty day job. You know, his boss just runs him through all the time. And so we have we have like the pure embodiment of everything that Bozo is afraid of in Melvin. Absolutely. And then, then of course, we have the introduction of a third point in this antagonistic yes. relationship, uh, which is the Toxic Avenger, Toxie themselves. After Melvin, Melvin is tricked into wearing the tutu uh, and it is, falls through a window into a vat of green goo, uh, toxic waste that is being driven by two guys who, are, uh, who have pulled over outside <laughs> of the gym just so they can rail some absolutely enormous lines of coke. Yes, yes, just doing um, scarface levels of cocaine right there. <laughs> yeah. So so how do we how do we think of that antagonism when we see the third point of Toxie cuz Toxie as a kind of masculine figure there's some very interesting uh, kind of normatively heterosexual masculine masculine figure there's some very interesting discourse happening there. So I I think Toxie is incredibly interesting if we're going to continue this discussion, right? Because we have, we have, we have Bozo as kind of, Bozo is the patriarchal ego, right? He is incredibly fragile and incredibly violent in order to sustain himself. And all of that violence is directed at pushing out the things that he refuses to have as part of his character. You know, like, like he is incredibly violent to everything he is othered because as, as, 
you know, the ego of the patriarch. He needs to get rid of that stuff, right? Melvin is all of that stuff. He's all of that unacknowledged presence, right? Being physically weak, you know, because like, you know, Bozo is a, a tough guy who works out, but surely there are dudes that are stronger because there is always a dude that is stronger, you know, but like Bozo could never confront that reality, right? And when Melvin becomes Toxie, Melvin ceases to exist. And Melvin becomes, interestingly, as you said, more masculine, right? Melvin becomes taller, stronger, more capable, more assertive. Um, he, he gets all of these things that are traditionally coded into masculinity. But what I find interesting about Melvin is the process he has to go through with this involves him kind of embracing in a weird, in the weirdest way ever, uh, because he embraces this by being dissolved in radioactive waste. But like he has to embrace the Melvin that is like clad in a tutu to go through this change, right? Like he has to, like almost like a butterfly, right? He must dissolve in the chrysalis that is this bathtub before reemerging as this more complete version of himself, right? He has to integrate. And he never sheds the tutu, right? Like he never puts on like a commando yeah. outfit or something. It becomes part Absolutely. of his new identity. Absolutely. He, he, the, the anima and the animus become one in the whole being that is the toxic Avenger. And I think that one of the interesting things for that, and, and this is, of course, not without its problems, right? It's not without its questions. But I think that this is an exploration of a way forward for... A, a an expression of masculinity that is resistant to and somehow opposed to uh you know like these the patriarchal the ultimate patriarchal manifestation that is bozo right like in a, in a way toxie is refusing to be a man actually i have a theory about this fire away um because i agree with you on a lot but i think i disagree with you on the conclusion um, so what is the toxic waste? Toxic waste is literally the, the degrading byproduct of the operations of industrial capitalism, right? That's what he falls into. Mm -hmm. He falls into capitalist production. He is transformed, right? Uh, he is integrated quite smoothly, uh, although not painlessly, into, uh, into uh, capitalism and reborn as a, as a kind of subversive element within that system. However, what does he get? You know, he um, he uh, gets a partner. They ha they have their own prototypical nuclear family. Mm -hmm. They even mo move in together. Um, so if you have if you have Melvin who is kind of like exiled from from any kind of heterosexuality, is sort of being uh, seen as kind of completely sexless or, or kind of cut off from that. And you have Bozo, who is this kind of coke-fueled, very sexually aggressive, uh, enjoys in a, in a pretty explicitly sexual way running children over with a car. Um, you will get into the crash then, discourse in a second. <laughs> we'll get into that. Then the Toxic Avenger is kind of like the middle point, right? It's a it's a model of it's a model of uh, patriarchal patriarchal heterosexuality that is like, well, you'll settle down and you'll have your own. You might be changed by the process, but allow yourself, you know, if, if you are integrated into the system, you can be, you can become, you know, you'll have your own little house in the toxic waste dump with your mm -hmm. supportive partner. You know, you'll start your own prototypical nuclear family that will be defended by the community in which you live. So there's some super interesting discourse happening here. 
Yeah, and that's the stuff. That, that's what I was hinting towards when I said that this is kind of incomplete, right? Because like that's a huge part of Toxie's character is becoming this kind of like agonized mockery of like white picket fence suburban America. You know, like every, everything about it is like a it's it's the picture of Dorian Gray for American society in a way, right? Like it, it's living in a dump. It's fueled by nuclear waste. You know, it, it is in and of itself in contrast with a society that, although not mutated by nuclear waste, is arguably much more twisted and dehumanized. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And all, all, yeah, so the, the, the conversations we can have about around specifically how masculinity is framed in this kind of like this, this triad of characters, I think is, is incredibly interesting and fruitful. Uh, basically, I really want Zizek to do like a forty-five minute talk on the Toxic Avenger. <laughs> but this, I mean, like l- literally, this is like a, a, a. I am I am eating from the uh, uh, coke fueled nuclear waste transport parked outside of the slummy fitness center all of the time. <laughs> so n- not only does Toxie end up getting this kind of prototypical nuclear family, the 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 irradiated wasteland that is the picket fence uh, idyll. This is arguably a superhero movie. Totally. I think it's I think it's quite openly, yeah, a superhero movie. And I guess we have not made any secret of our I'm just gonna say mild critiques of the Disney hegemony over popular cultural imagination, of the the sprawling morass that is the MCU. I'm just, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on this as a superhero movie in contrast to the superhero movies that we get now? Ooh, 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 ooh. I wasn't expecting this question. I really, really like this question. I think the first thing I would jump to is the contemporary, the contemporary Marvel and DC kind of superhero universe films landscape stuff is incredibly squeaky clean. You know, uh, the the majority of deaths that we see on screen are noble sacrifices for some higher purpose, right? People people die in the course of saving a world, or they they die as the tragic motivator to spur our heroes forward. You know, um, and, and the deaths are largely clean and bloodless and free of agony, and in in place of suffering they're given just tremendous emotional weight uh in in toxie everything is disgusting and painful you know toxie's existence is disgusting pain you know kind of made manifest right like he's just covered in burns and and mutations and i think that that for me is is really interesting i don't know that that's that's where i went to first what about you well, uh, I also think, yes, I agree with you. And I also think that this is a very low-level kind of superheroics, right? There, this is, this is not a film made by the DOD. This is not about, like, uh, world-famous celebrities saving the entire uh, entirety of all existence everywhere all the time um, who are super shiny and slick. This is mundane. This is integrated into a specific... Uh, locale and community this is one person who has been through something hideously painful being being driven by a kind of like 
uh, as a scientist figure says, by a basic kind of instinct to confront evil. Um, so yeah, uh, my hot take is that this is the kind of superhero film that we should have more of. <laughs> no, no, I, I I completely agree. Like in like, so the th- one of the things about trauma movies that I really like is that they're inherently deeply complicated. You know, like like I was saying this earlier in the episode, but there's no easy way out of a trauma movie. You know, once you once you enter into the space, like weird stuff is going to happen and you're going to have to deal with whatever happens by the end of the film. And there's yeah, there's this perverse sanitization that comes with a lot of contemporary AAA studio superhero films where it, it winds up being. Just. I don't know, like there's something very uncomfortable about uh, seeing all these different versions of Elon Musk defeat, uh, you know, people, people who were wounded by society. Right. Like I keep thinking about those Spider-Man, the newest set of Spider-Man movies were like in, in the first movie, the bad guy is literally uh, a bunch of construction workers who lost their jobs because Elon Musk bought whatever they were working on and then fired them all. And then the bad guys in the second Spider-Man movie are a bunch of Elon Musk's employees who are trying to start a union. Mm. And it's just yeah. like, ah, that's so I'd rather, I'd rather have this big sloppy mess that's complicated and hashtag problematic over these really like sparkling clean depictions of like this sterilized capitalistic ideal yeah and 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 also kind of further to that point uh i think like <laughs> i superhero stories are principally intended for kids it's 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 a story that deals in very simple dramatic tropes bold symbolic gestures um they're principally d- designed to be entertainment for young people and children. And in my opinion, huge amounts of this movie is a cartoon for kids. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's less gory, more gross. Like, like the whole thing in the, in the restaurant um, with like making the bad guys into various kinds of food. That is a bit from Saturday morning kids TV, you know, like covering a guy in like the squirty cream for a milkshake uh, or like, uh, cramming somebody into a pizza oven, uh, and you know the the like this is children's television. <laughs> I, I don't think and there's something. I don't think I could have crafted a take hotter than the Toxic Avenger is a children's like Sunday morning cartoon <laughs> show. <laughs> Even though they did go on to make a children's Sunday morning cartoon show based on the Toxic Avenger, so you are well, historically there you correct. Go. <laughs> there you go. Like I was thinking of the the fight, but it's like it's literally got the '60s era like kapow sound effects when you punch somebody. Oh, I loved um, those old like when they're doing the kung fu fight and they have like the old sword sound effects and stuff. That is just that was just Shwing. chef's kiss. <laughs> um, I loved that stuff, and I think like the only thing I would say to that is like I, I think what has happened to kind of superheroes as kind of a, a story element right is really sad you know because there, there are some amazing superhero comics out there that tell very i think nuanced and, and interesting and complicated stories for adults not for children at all and i think 
because arguably entirely because of their financial success, what we're stuck with is this kind of watered down uh, kind of, I, I don't know, essentially propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that strips out a lot of the kind of messy complexity of something like the Toxic Avenger, right? Right, and, and that's real. There's a realism to Toxie that could never exist in a Zack Snyder superhero movie. Okay, that's the hottest take of this episode so far. Come, come, come at me. Where is my Alan Moore's The Toxic Avenger? Give me the ultimate problematic but deeply interesting and discursively rich superhero comic theoretically possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is this is a superhero film. It is a, it is a kids cartoon, but it is also a psychoanalytically rich black comedy horror movie at the same time really what doesn't the toxic avenger do <laughs> besides besides let us be easy yeah it does it ref, it refuses the kind of simplistic interpretations of something like the, the latest two-hour orange and teal explosion fest from uh marvel and disney you know yes. that's that's that that's what it does. Really, really, just I mean, like I know this is like the third episode in a row I've I've mentioned it, but like God bless the Venom movie for being as weird mm-hmm. as it was. Just just thank yeah, you for absolutely. being a, a beautiful ray of sunlight on on a cloudy day. Should we talk about Should we talk about the 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 the, the very brief gestures this film makes towards some environmental critiques? I I actually think that this this film is pretty discursively rich when it comes to talking about environmentalism so so let, let much like melvin himself let let us go green <laughs> it, it, indeed so there's a very quick scene with our fabulously corrupt mayor who's talking about how land which has been earmarked for a nature reserve is, is in fact that is not profitable it's not profitable it doesn't generate revenue um and it's now become the place where loads of toxic goo is being dumped. Um, I think that's the most explicit moment. Uh, but this is also where the Toxic Avenger ends up building a kind of fortress of solitude slash adorable house in the burbs um, at the same time. So wh- what do you think about this film from an environmentalist point of view, from an ecological point of view? I would say that this entire film, at its core is about environmental politics. Like, like I, th- I think it goes so deep as to be like, like if this movie is about any two things, it's about masculinity and trauma within the patriarchy and environmentalism. Like, I think that those are the two meditations that this movie is having first and foremost. Because well, one thing I forgot to mention that I really need to mention, right? Like, if you were, if you were gendered a male uh, when you were growing up, like, you are Skippy in this movie. Uh, Skippy is the when we first see Skippy um, and sorry to like take us back to this but like this is a point that like I feel like I can't I would be so remiss not to bring this up um, but when we first see Skippy he's going for like a nighttime bike ride and like his his mom or his grandmother's like now Skippy don't forget to wear your helmet and it's it's very it's very <laughs> yeah. leave it to beaver with in- incredible black comedy foreshadowing um, yes. but but he's the little boy that um, Bozo runs down Right, and because this is a trauma movie, you get to see all of it. Trauma is not going to cut when that happens. They're going to make you see it twice. What I find to be really interesting there is like the patriarchy is 
causing Bozo to be violent towards other men in addition to women, right? Like it is this complex network of, of trauma being passed through people. Right. And like that, I think is like it in, incredibly interesting within the, the context of this movie, but to pivot us to environmentalism really quickly. Um, what I would say about this movie is like, is so concerned with it. Right. Like we have like, our superhero literally only exists because there is deregulation for the storage of toxic waste. You know, we have nature reserves being turned into dumps. You know, we have, we have like the, the greedy mayor and his business cohorts are just, just like laughing up a storm when they realize that like they, that uh, since the nature preserve thing exists, that means that their new toxic waste dump is just going to be like 50 feet from the town's water reserves. I think that this this movie winds up a weird, and then like we we have this whole like in in the third act, Toxie and his partner are going going. They're leaving the city. They're going to live in this bucolic wilderness to get away from the the, the complex terrors of man. Um, but it turns out that that doesn't work, right? Because they're, they're, the bucolic wilderness is an extension of the complex terrors of man, right? It's, it's woven into that system, right? These are the little baubles of nature that we keep around until we can turn them into something industrial, which is what happens in, in the movie, right? Like this industrial military force moves into their little campsite, which weirdly enough looks like the back lot of some like unused space. Definitely doesn't yeah, really look like a forest at all, but like... Yeah, by some strange coincidence, it looks like somebody's backyard. Um, but that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> anyway, that, that was that was like an extended uh, rant about like three different things. So feel free to pick up on any part of those threads. No, I I, I would agree. Um, I, like, it, Tromaville uh, is the toxic waste capital of the world, uh, or or of the country. I think they say at the beginning of the film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is a town that is both dependent upon uh, and at the same time dependent upon capitalist pollution and at the same time suffering from it as well. Um, and it's, it's of course, the great neoliberal challenge of how can we monetize the rots, yeah. um, which runs through the heart of this film, bring us, bringing us on to the fabulously corrupt, uh, over-the-top officials and, and uh, legal structures of Tromaville. I, I think this would be a great moment to now talk about the police. <laughs> uh, once again, once again, the rule of um, in horror movies, cops are not just malevolent but useless is proven to be science. The HV line on horror movie cops that they are always not just a danger but completely uh, without utility in any sense is science. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, did, did a new immortal science of left thought just drop? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah. I, I What I find to be really interesting in this one is that like this movie literally has the one good cop. Officer Clancy is the one good cop left in Tromaville, right? All the other cops are on the take of, of corrupt uh, businessmen who are polluting the city and doing evil and, and the corrupt mayor. Uh, the the police chief is a, is literally a Nazi, right? Like like yeah. he he yeah. barely hides his German accent. He's always like Achtung and like doing doing Nazi salutes, right? So he's he's as evil as you could possibly get, and also really reflective of policing in general. But what what I found to be really interesting is that like 
even though this town has one good cop, it's useless because the problem is systemic. That the one good cop literally accomplishes zero things throughout the entire movie besides getting beat up a couple times. You know, like he, he's unable to stop his fellow police officers from going after Toxie, even though Toxie is trying to save the town. You know, arguably the only good thing he does at the end is when he stands with the actual people of Tromaville and stops being a cop in that moment, in a sense, even though this does problematically fold into copaganda. Yes. Yes, I think so. Um, but also the, the scene with our, our one good cop who's when he's like, oh no, it looks like they're going to try and kill this mysterious superhero the town has really fallen for. Well, yes, there's nothing I can do. Um, just just shows the, the this kind of... I, I, I have, I, in the in the notes, uh, I, I put it, cops are bad, liberal coward version. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that you know, is incredibly correct. It's like, oh, I'm I'm just one person. I'm completely useless. And it's like, uh, yes, yep, fair enough. Um, in which case, uh, do what the good cops do, which is quit. Right. <laughs> good cops stop being cops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think that's a that's an incredibly good analysis of literally the one cop in Tromaville who's not openly if not literally a Nazi, uh, some kind of like corrupt business dude. Yeah. Just doesn't, doesn't just goes, well, I can't do anything. And it's like, that's not good enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I, I, I totally agree. And I think this, there's, there's also an interesting conversation to have here in regard to Toxie and the carceral state and policing. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of Toxie's, quote-unquote heroics just wind up filling the jail cells uh they they even say that right yes. oh he's he's caught so many criminals the jail we can't we can't keep locking these people up yes it, 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 exactly you know and like i think this is this is kind of a, a limitation on the cultural I- imaginary space of the superhero in general i don't think this is actually about toxie I think this is a limitation to how we see superheroes, right? Because pretty much every single superhero and every single superhero movie and most superhero comics, they're just kind of extensions of the police force, except for they, they have like space stations and they can fly around. But at the end of the day, they're still just arresting people. Yeah. You know, like it's not an actual consideration of what crime quote unquote crime is and how it happens and how it comes into society. It's just kind of, you know, policing and so we we get that with toxie as well toxie still exists in kind of this space which again i think problematizes in interesting ways our conversations on masculinity earlier if at the end of the day what is toxie than a cop uh yeah and and that's kind of the problem right that's that's it's it's not something that is escapable this idea of like what's the relationship between the superhero and, and law enforcement um, the, 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 the fist of the carceral state, um, the two go very closely together. Um, and I think, I think Toxie in a way, uh, just underscores the fact that like the fact that we have this one good cop who literally refuses to do anything. Um, you could make the argument that this is a, this is an example of the idea that institutionalized, uh, law enforcement is, is a complete non-starter and that it's, 
uh, Toxie that is a kind of proto figure of like community self defense. But I don't know if I 100% buy that, but I think there is, a, that, there is that reading that you could kind of try and draw out the text. Well, I think, I think that the, for, for me, a lot of this is less about finding the concrete correct takes and more about creating new venues of discussion and opening up people to new ideas and new thought. And if we want to talk about Toxie as community self-defense, I think that that is an interesting space or like like superheroes in general as a manifestation of community self-defense and why they don't do that you know and why why they rarely start to exist in those space like the luke cage show i think was uh, can offer up a pretty interesting conversation in that regard but like i i think that that it, it opens a door for very interesting conversations yeah absolutely um but speaking of interesting conversations can I can I ask you about your opinions of former United States President Richard Nixon? Yes. Uh, so uh, we didn't want to spoil anything, but um, I have been doing a lot of uh, conjuring and necromancy and today joining us on the pod straight from the darkest, coldest depths of hell, Richard Nixon. Everyone, Richard Nixon. Uh, so Richard Nixon so why, has, why has a cameo. Talk, why are we talking? Why are we talking about Richard Nixon? Yeah, R- Richard Nixon <laughs> has a cameo in the Toxic Avenger, <laughs> and that's when the Toxic Avenger steps on a copy of Six Crises and uh, lets it sink into the toxic waste-filled mud in the dump. It's it's this it's this actually a really interesting series of shots in the movie where like Toxie is kind of like stomping his way home through the dump. And it's, it's very it's very interesting and monstrous when we get these shots of just like boiling over toxic waste and just this refuse of industrial society. And then one of one of those shots is just a copy of Nixon's flagship book getting getting stepped on into this waste. Um. Okay. Uh, so. So. So if you if you if you don't know the the book in question is Six Crises, uh, it was written in the sixties by Richard Nixon. Um, it was written as a um, kind of response to Kennedy's book Profiles in Courage. That was what gave Kennedy a big boost to his public profile, um, and uh, it was Mamie Eisenhower who suggested that Nixon write the book <laughs> as a, a, as a way of boosting his uh, public profile. Um, six, the six crises refer to six kind of high stakes, stressful political situations that Nixon had been in. Uh, the very first one, the very first one in six crises is the Alger Hiss controversy, um, which is, um, is, is all about Nixon serving on the House Un-American Activities Committee <laughs> back in the 19, late 1940s, I think. What a dickhead. Um, so... <laughs> So the very fact that it's a this book that gets stomped into the mud by the corrosive power of toxic goo, I am still, I am still trying to unpack in my mind what it means that Six Crises by Richard Nixon is the book that they chose. Well, I think what's interesting here is like, you know, like Nixon and Reagan, two huge factors for deregulation. Right. And, and two, two huge factors for our movement towards this kind of environmental, the space of environmental degradation, the space that would let 
uh, because you know one of the uh, the kind of like recurring jokes in trauma movies is that Tromaville is kind of like this uh, hideous reflection of white picket fence America. You know, like if White Picket Fence America is supposed to be a bucolic space where everyone is happy and hardworking and has bootstrap ethics and all that stuff, Tromaville is the dark reality of that where everything is rotting away, everyone's losing their minds, everything is terrible. Um, but I I do like the persistent critique of Richard Nixon here. And I mean, I think if even on the most surface level, the correct thing to do with a copy of Six Crises is stomp it into the mud, so... And of course, it was Nixon who set up the EPA, the Environmental yes. Protection Agency, in yes. 1970. And it's this, uh, and he, you know, here we have Toxie, a victim of the EPA's defunding the and the deregulation of environmental protections generally, literally melting his book into the earth, and um, which is just an incredibly loaded symbolic moment we, we can i think complicate this a little further right like you know i think today's keywords are complement complicate and problematize but we can take this another level i think because the function of the epa is to give plausible deniability to capitalism and to into a state that sustains a capitalistic economy right because the epa allows politicians to go like well actually we have a rule in place that says you can't pollute that much you broke that yes. rule so we're going to give you an inconsequential fine. It, it won't matter. And and like like how many oil spills? All, all those oil spills are technically against EPA regulations. You're not supposed to do those. How many do we have? How little consequence has there been? You know, like like none of the like a, a hundred million dollar fine doesn't mean anything to an oil company. That's the, that's a that's a that's mm-hmm. a penny falling in the hat to them. You know, it, it's yeah. irrelevant. Yeah. It's not it's not a meaningful consequence like seizing all of their assets and nationalizing the company. Right. So so in, in a lot of ways, Nixon's creation of the EPA further instantiated the kind of environmental degradation that we face. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, I would agree. And the big the big message of the six crises is uh, Nixon's consistent anti-communism, anti-Soviet activity, his um, the kitchen debate with Khrushchev, um, like this constant, the Alger his chapter. It's 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 this. It's just an incredibly weird moment in the film. I, I don't know about you, but I, I I had never seen The Toxic Avenger before. So I actually went back and paused it and, and just sat there looking at it for like a minute being like, seriously? Nixon cameos in a trauma film? <laughs> yeah, I really, 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 really like this. You know, like... Um, I went back and I got the P- I got a PDF of Six Crises and flipped through it and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, which and it just goes to show that you know this when we when we're talking about Kaufman as a as a filmmaker with something to say in capital letters, we're not we're not just kind of reaching. You know, there is a very clear political sensibility. There is very deliberate choices being made. Um, a very anti Nixonian line being taken um which is just just great <laughs> no and i mean like um if you want to listen to a really good interview parallax views did an interview with lloyd kaufman recently absolutely uh, yes absolutely phenomenal interview and episode and like if you have any doubts about lloyd kaufman being very intentionally political uh, uh disabuse yourself of those notions and go listen to that episode 
yeah, we will link it in the show description. So please do, ch- please do check it out and some of the other incredible episodes uh, that Parallax has put out. Yes. Uh, shout out to JG Michael and Parallax Views. Amazing show. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. This conversation has been interestingly messy. I think it's appropriate to, to the context of doing a trauma movie that we are uh, kind of mired in, a, in an interweaving and quickly cut uh, a kind of conversation right now. Uh, yeah, trauma films are the very definition of a lot's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, are, do you have any any final thoughts, any last last things that you wanted to bring up? Hmm. No. <laughs> I think I think uh, we've already we've already gone well over our our usual time, so I think I'm just going to kind of myself take a quick cut and end of the episode. Do you want to want to do our new ending thing? Yeah. Okay. So so new ending thing. Transition goes here. Scientists of all ages. Who? What? Brilliant. Gee whiz. Just brilliant. And here's the new ending thing um, that I will tease at the beginning of the episode in post-production. But uh, it occurred to me recently that we end a lot of our episodes kind of like talking about all the things that we wish we would have had more time to talk about. Um, truly discussing horror movies is an incredibly discursively rich field to be in. Um, you know, like, like I say this at the end of every episode, but like, you know, we could, we could do an entire podcast about the toxic Avenger and just, just absolutely explicate the hell out of this text. But, uh, you know, there is not enough time in the day, not enough time in a single life to, to get all this work done. So, so rather than just kind of letting our episodes peter out now, we're going to uh, ask you, the listeners, some further questions for discussion. Yes. So um, if you listen to the show, we, we always want to keep the conversation going. We what, what we don't want to do is just leave people thinking that, oh, well, they've talked about that. Therefore, yeah. the discussion's over. Like great art, uh, all art demands constant conversation, you know. So a few questions, a few questions uh, from me to all of you listening. How do you deal with the problematic elements of art? What what what's the kind of um, way in which you choose to respond to art and artists um, that have problematic elements to them? Everyone has their own line that they draw, um, and I think it's it's an important thing to be aware of and to be open to talking about. Um, and secondly, a slightly controversial take, but is this the only good superhero film? <laughs> bold question (laughs) i will ask of you dear listeners the following two questions how do we situate the independent production of this film within a greater material analysis of the text of this film that is to say in what ways can we interpret how this movie was made and how that changes our reading of its text and uh, as kind of a coda to john's first question how do we further problematize what this movie is already problematizing? This movie is asking a lot of very messy, complicated questions and raising uh, some very strange and often off-putting statements for us to deal with. Where do we take those? As always, as always, do do let us know your thoughts on uh, Twitter. You can find the show at Horror Vanguard. Um, and if you want to continue the, the discussion in more detail, 
please do join the HV Patreon. We have an incredibly active Discord where uh, fans and listeners to the show talk about what we've brought up, bring their own analysis to bear on the situation. You get early access to all of our episodes, access to bonus material, and a whole lot more for just a few dollars every month. So thank you very much for listening and stay spooky, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs> Ha 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 